Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series all about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to talk about the Confederacy. Now, in case you don't know, the Confederacy was one of the sides of the Civil War in the United States, and its symbols and statues are still present in America today. But starting today, I'm going to take you through a short three-part series to explain why the Confederacy should be left in our history, why myths about it still persist, and how we can change that perception going forward. I want to put a big content warning here because this episode is going to dive deep into the history of racism, the Civil War, and the Confederacy, all of which can be very sensitive topics. We will also briefly touch on the KKK and Jim Crow. If you don't think you can stick around for this one, I completely understand. This was a rough one for me to go through as well. So if you need to see me in the next one, that's totally fine. Also an important note about the terminology that's gonna be used throughout these episodes. I try to refer to enslaved people as enslaved people because they themselves were people and deserve to be referred to as such. I think it's very important that we remember that enslaved people were human. They are human and they were demoralized and treated in very inhumane ways. Additionally, I refer to black people as black throughout these episodes rather than African-American. And I wanted to make that note here because I'm not trying to offend anyone by using one terminology over another. If you are black and you prefer different terminology than what I've used, I'd love to hear your perspective on it. And I'm always willing to listen and learn. But from this historical perspective, the enslaved people were not African-Americans. They were just in a lot of sources called slaves or they were black or obviously much more offensive and terrible words that I am not going to repeat. So let's get into it and begin with talking a little bit about the history of slavery. Now, before I can touch on the Civil War or the Confederacy, I need to start out by talking about the history of slavery in the US. So much of the Civil War was fought over slavery that ignoring this history would just kind of be impossible. Many of you may be unaware that slavery was introduced to what is now the United States in 1619, a full year before the Mayflower ever actually came to America. A Dutch ship arrived in what is now Virginia with 20 black enslaved people aboard that ship. These black people were the first enslaved people that would later become the United States more than 150 years later. Though there were few black enslaved people in the country at that time, at the end of the 17th century, the transatlantic slave trade became more frequent in the American colonies. After enslaved people began to be brought to the colonies more frequently in 1661, Maryland passed a law prohibiting marriage between races. Slavery was economically good for the people that benefited from it. The church, wealthy members of society, and the colonies. They often became wealthy as a result of trading commodities, and they even used the money obtained by slavery to become political figures. Slavery continued to grow. The New York Times explains the use of enslaved laborers was affirmed and its continual growth was promoted. Through the recreation of a Virginia law in 1662 that decreed that the status of the child followed the status of the mother, which meant that enslaved women gave birth to generations of children of African descent who were now seen as commodities. 
They go on to explain this natural increase allowed the colonies and then the United States to become a slave nation. The law also secured wealth for European colonists and generations of their descendants, even as free black people could be legally prohibited from bequeathing their wealth to their own children. And to make matters worse, racial and class line distinctions were drawn through the law. Black enslaved people were punished much harsher than their white counterparts. They would be enslaved for life for breaking the law, whereas white indentured servants that broke the law would be indentured for a few more years. This was the beginning of protecting white people and punishing black people for the color of their skin. One look at the sugarcane industry, which was the crop of choice early on, shows just how brutally enslaved people were being treated. New York Times elaborates by saying, before cotton dominated American agriculture, sugar drove the slave trade throughout the Caribbean and Spanish Americas. Sugarcane was a brutal crop that required constant work six days a week, and it maimed, burned, and killed those involved in its cultivation. The lifespan of an enslaved person on a sugar plantation could be as little as seven years. Unfazed, plantation owners worked their enslaved laborers to death and prepared for this high turnover by ensuring that new enslaved people arrived on a regular basis to replace the dying. And honestly, it's horrific. I mean, I get it. Slavery wasn't pretty. It was brutal. It was torture. But I think here in America, we're often fed such a half-assed version of history that the realities of it are shocking. It should come as no surprise that enslaved people fought for their freedom every chance they got. One uprising was so large that it caught the attention of white lawmakers. New York Times tells us, in September, 1739, a group of enslaved Africans in the South Carolina colony led by an enslaved man called Jemmy gathered outside Charleston where they killed two storekeepers and seized weapons and ammunition. They go on saying, the rebels marched on with colors displayed and two drums beating along the Stono River entreating other members of the enslaved community to join them. Their goal was Spanish Florida, where they were promised freedom if they fought as the first line of defense against British attack. I can only imagine that they did everything they could to get there so that they could be free. Their lives literally depended on it. This effort called the Stono Rebellion was the largest slave uprising in the mainland British colonies. Between 60 and 100 black people participated in the rebellion about 40 black people and 20 white people were killed and other freedom fighters were captured and questioned. As a result, white lawmakers in South Carolina, afraid of additional rebellions, put a 10-year moratorium on the importation of enslaved Africans and passed the Negro Act of 1740, which criminalized assembly, education, and moving abroad among the enslaved. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence declared that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness should be given to all men. But as we know, the Declaration of Independence didn't really mean all men. It really meant white men. The New York Times explains, enslaved people, however, seized any opportunity to secure their freedom. Some fought for it through military service in the Revolutionary War, rather serving for the British or the Patriots. Others benefited from gradual emancipation enacted in states like Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. In New York, for example, children born after July 4th, 1799 were legally free when they turned 25, if they were women, or 28 if they were men. The law was meant to compensate slaveholders by keeping people enslaved during some of their most productive years. It seemed like perhaps the tide was beginning to change and eventually slavery would phase itself out, but that would be too simple, of course, because white men liked the money they were getting from all this essentially free labor the enslaved people gave them. 
Both tobacco and cotton were important agricultural resources to the Southern states of the Union, and they required intense labor to cultivate. In the first act of ending slavery, Congress stopped allowing enslaved people to be imported in the 1808 year, effectively ending the United States' involvement in the slave trade. But that didn't stop people from buying and selling enslaved people within the country. And unfortunately, the international trading continued despite Congress's act. Britannica gives us insight onto how the Constitution is responsible for slavery becoming even more entrenched in American culture, saying, But with the ratification of the Constitution of the United States in 1788, slavery became more firmly entrenched than ever in the South. The Constitution counted a slave as three-fifths of a person for purposes of taxation and representation in Congress. Thus, increasing the number of representatives from slave states prohibited Congress from abolishing the African trade of enslaved peoples before 1808 and provided for the return of fugitive slaves to their owners. And even more sadly and disturbing, because of the Congress Act to end international slave trading, many black women were raped and forced to give birth to children in order to increase the number of enslaved people that were available to work in the fields. Girls were often forced into this type of rape as early as the age of 13. With the invention of the cotton gin, cotton was even more in demand, which made cotton even more invaluable. As a result, people in the South needed even more laborers, and so they worked enslaved people to their deaths. At this point, there were somewhere around 1 million enslaved people being worked in cotton, sugar, and rice fields. The New York Times says the sale of enslaved people and the products of their labor secured the nation's position as a global economic and political powerhouse, but they faced increasingly inhumane conditions. As all of this happened in the country, people started to advocate for the end of slavery. And it was in 1860 that Abraham Lincoln was elected president, which is where we get into the Civil War. And before we get into the Civil War and of course the beginning of the Confederacy, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor for allowing me to discuss a pretty sensitive topic. Today's Prism of the Past is sponsored by Adam and Eve. Now, many of you already know who Adam and Eve are, but in case you don't, let me just give you a quick little rundown here. So Adam and Eve is an online retailer of adult sex toys. And they have been around for quite a while now, since 1970 to be exact. And they have been providing decades of years of entertainment, fun, and wellness care products delivered to your door discreetly. And now they are offering 50% off one item plus free shipping on any product that is shipped to the US or Canada to all of my listeners. Maybe you wanna spice things up in the bedroom or maybe you just wanna spice things up for yourself or perhaps even a gift. I've definitely given (laughs) some strange gifts to friends in the past, including some sexual toys. So it doesn't matter if you're getting a gift for you, for a loved one, for a not so loved one, just a friend, whoever, you can now use my code PRISM to get 50% off one item and free shipping in the US and Canada. And 20% of their profit goes right to fighting the spread of HIV around the world. They offer 90 day no hassle returns and they have 24 seven customer service always available for whatever questions you might have. So again, if you wanna try something new out, make sure to go to adamandeve.com and you'll get 50% off almost any one item plus free shipping when you use code PRISM at checkout. Again, that's adamandeve.com and use code PRISM to get 50% off one item plus free shipping.
It probably comes as no surprise to you that because the North had begun to set enslaved people free, the South deeply resented the North and felt that the North was going to ruin its way of life. The North had become more industrialized, whereas the South still mainly relied on agriculture. When Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860, the South felt really threatened because he had run as a part of the anti-slavery campaign. Britannica explains the beginning of the Civil War saying, the United States Army began building Fort Sumner on the artificial island at the entrance to the Charleston Harbor in 1829. The fort was named for Thomas Sumner, a general who had won key victories against the British in the Carolinas during the American Revolution. The fort was still under construction during the last months of President James Buchanan's term when a succession of events occurred that brought the contending regions of the United States to the verge of armed conflict. Soon after the election of Abraham Lincoln in November, 1860, the state of South Carolina called a convention that passed an ordinance of secession and Governor Francis Pickens sent commissioners to Washington, DC. Essentially at this point, Pickens commissioners wanted federal troops were called and President Buchanan told them no. He really thought he'd be able to strike a compromise. So rather than try to push the Southern states, he told South Carolina that while he didn't accept their succession, that he wouldn't try to coerce them. As a result, there was a peace conference in which the Union tried to decide if they could appease the Southern states to keep more of them from seceding, but Lincoln and the Republican party of the time wouldn't agree to the concessions. Between January 9th and February 1st, six other states followed South Carolina's example. Without attempting negotiation, their governors seized all the forts and arsenals in their prospective states, except Fort Pickens in the harbor of Pensacola, Florida. At this point, seven states seceded from the Union. These states were South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. These states' secession from the Union was predicated upon the idea that Abraham Lincoln's presidency was a threat towards their way of life. In February, 1861 in Montgomery, Alabama, there was a meeting between the seceded states where a provincial government for the Confederate States of America was created. As a result, Montgomery became the first capital of the Confederacy. The government that was created was based on the same principles as the Union's government with very little changes and then Senator of Mississippi Jefferson Davis was elected as the Confederacy's president. The Confederate government then assumed control of the negotiations about Sumner. Neither Buchanan nor Davis was eager to precipitate a crisis. Buchanan's fervent desire apparently was to leave the solution out of the whole problem to his successor. Davis was chiefly concerned with getting his own administration in working order. At this point, neither side wanted war. The seceded states wanted to go on with their way of life and the Union wanted the seceded states to stay as part of the Union. Britannica explains the South had assumed a defensive role, that of a newborn country asking to be left alone. Lincoln's inaugural speech was really addressed to the slave states still in the Union. To the Confederate states, it sounded like a declaration of war, but they sought to avoid the responsibility of striking the first blow. Major Anderson was still in place at Sumner, but tensions were growing. He did his job as a dutiful soldier and stayed put, though he really wanted to leave and avoid starting a civil war. The Union didn't really have enough soldiers to secure the harbor around Fort Sumner. Unfortunately, they had a total of 17,000 men, but most of them were in the West, too far away to help quickly. Only on March 5th did Lincoln learn that Anderson might be starved into surrender. General Winfield Scott, the president's chief military advisor, urged evacuation on military grounds. However, Lincoln had pledged himself to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government. 
it would be fatal to the prestige of his administration to start by going back on his word, and evacuation might seem a virtual recognition of the Confederacy. Against the advice of a majority of his cabinet, he determined to send relief expeditions, carrying only food supplies to Sumner. This was logistical on Lincoln's Park. He knew that war would unite the North, but he didn't feel he could do anything to avoid the South's ire. So Lincoln told Pickens exactly what he planned to do, which means he must have been extremely confident in his decisions. Upon Anderson's refusal to evacuate, the batteries opened fire at 4.30 a.m. on April 12th. The next afternoon, Anderson agreed to surrender and evacuated the fort at noon on April 14th. When the U.S. troops marched out of the fort, they waved the U.S. flag and carried out a gun salute. On the 50th round of the 100-gun salute, an explosion occurred, causing the only death of the engagement. Now, remember, this sounds really long, like years long, but all the things leading up to this battle only lasted six months. The battle itself lasted a mere two days. Keep note of this because the amount of time these events lasted will come up later. Within a month, four more states joined the Confederate States of America. Those states were Tennessee, Arkansas, Virginia, and North Carolina. Lincoln did not see any of the seceded states as a separate nation, but rather states that were rebelling. As a result, he did not treat them like a separate country. And believe it or not, but the Confederate states actually had some advantages going into war. While the seceded states didn't have a large of a population or nearly as much money, they had other advantages that led to this being such a bloody war. The Confederates mainly had high morale and motivation to win the war because of the threat to their way of life. And I do want to make note that again, this is mainly due to the main institution behind slavery and keeping that intact. And this will come up again later. So what did the Confederacy look like? Well, the Confederacy modeled itself after the United States. It created a constitution and elected a president. While there were some differences, the vast majority of it stayed the same. The Confederate States didn't have any major issues with how the US was run. Rather, it didn't want its vastly held traditions to go away. The new Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, anticipated a long and bloody war and began to enlist troops to begin to fight the war. He wanted troops to be able to serve for three years, but military affairs didn't agree. They limited service to one year. By the time the Battle of Fort Sumner happened, he had enlisted 62,000 troops. Also around this point, Davis named Richmond, Virginia, the new capital of the Confederacy. A meeting to make the government for the Confederate States of America would be held there a year later. At this point, they decided to create symbols of their independence, including stamps and their very famous flag, sometimes called the Stars and Bars, otherwise known as the Southern Cross. Early on, the Confederacy's chief objective was to raise money and build an army. Initially, they allowed people to volunteer for their military services, but eventually men were conscripted into the war. A total number of military members that served in the Civil War for the Confederacy was estimated somewhere around 750,000 men. Additionally, the Confederacy needed money to fund the war, and at first they began to print money, which inevitably led to inflation, and to make matters worse, the Union blocked the ports so they were unable to import and export, making them unable to rely on tariffs. Eventually, they began to tax profits on goods, including farm products, to make their money. After Fort Sumner in July 1861, the Confederacy had their first large win at the First Battle of Bull Run. So let me go briefly over this encounter as I believe it will set up the Confederacy for their eventual loss. History does an excellent job of providing a succinct explanation saying, the first battle of Bull Run, also known as the Battle of Manassas, marked the first major land battle of the American Civil War. 
On July 21, 1861, Union and Confederate armies clashed near Manassas Junction, Virginia. The engagement began when about 35,000 Union troops marched from the federal capital in Washington, D.C. to strike a Confederate force of 20,000 along a small river known as Bull Run. After fighting on the defense for almost a day, the rebels rallied and were able to break the Union fight flank, sending the Federals into a chaotic retreat towards Washington. The Confederate victory gave the South a surge of confidence and shocked many in the North, who realized the war would not be won as easily as they had hoped. I believe this would actually mark the beginning of the Confederacy's undoing, because by the end of this battle, Southern war generals were so confident that they believed that just one Confederate soldier could take out 10 Yankees. As a result, they rested on their laurels, believing they'd won the war swiftly. The North moved quickly to organize so they'd be able to defeat the Confederacy once and for all. 1862 was a turning point in the war, and I'm not going to describe each battle because I, we would be here for weeks. Instead, I'm going to focus on the events that led up to the end of the war and as a result, the end of the Confederacy. However, in 1862, several battles took place, including one with ironclad warships that eventually included a battle in Tennessee that would have so many casualties that it left both sides unable to fight for nearly three weeks. But possibly the most important battle of that year was the Battle of Antietam, Maryland. It was the darkest day on record for the Civil War due to the number of casualties. At this point, Lincoln became more focused on setting enslaved peoples free from the Confederacy rather than preserving the Union. The year 1862 marked a major turning point in the war, especially the war in the East, as Lee took command of the Confederate Army, which he promptly named the Army of Northern Virginia. With Lee's ascent, the Army of the Potomac found itself repeatedly battered. Union forces in the West experienced far greater success under more aggressive generals. Paradoxically, Lee kept the Confederate war effort going long enough for Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, which struck at the very institution the South had gone to war to protect. Anti-Edom's battle was most important because of its outcome. It wasn't the number of people that died in that battle that made it the most important one. It was the Emancipation Proclamation that came out of that battle. As Britannica explains, from the onset of the war, slaves had been pouring into federal camps seeking safety and freedom. Early in the war, Lincoln had slapped the wrists of commanders who tried to issue emancipation edicts in areas under their control. Trying to balance political and military necessity against moral imperatives, Lincoln believed that keeping the slave-owning border states, Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and particularly Kentucky in the Union was critical and that making any move toward freeing slaves could incite those states to secede. Moreover, the constitution protected slavery in several ways, most importantly through its defense of property rights. Finally, Lincoln believed for the first year or so of the war that a significant number of unionists existed in the seceded states and that given time, those people would rise up and revolt against the Confederate government. While I understand that Lincoln was in a difficult position, that point is still disappointing to me. I guess when I think of something being a moral imperative, it stands to reason that you should do it regardless of consequences. But Lincoln was doing what I guess any president does and balancing the politics and the consequences of his actions. I'm not in his shoes, so I can't exactly understand what his thought process was. Britannica goes on to explain how slaves, which were regarded as property, were able to be confiscated, explaining, as early as August 1861, slaveholders' claims to property rights had begun to erode when Congress passed its first Confiscation Act. 
which allowed Union troops to seize rebels' property, including slaves who fought with or worked with the Confederate military. One Union general, Benjamin Butler, a prominent attorney and politician in civilian life, read up on military law and used confiscation laws to the Union's benefit by turning the slave owner's claim to property rights on its head. Armies had always been able to confiscate property of military value, Butler argued, and slaves were instrumental in supporting the Confederate cause. With so many slaves manning factories and working fields, about 80% of eligible white Southern men wound up serving in the military. Butler declared slaves who came into his lines to be contrabands of war and therefore not liable for return to their masters. The name contrabands was used for the remainder of the war to describe slaves who ran from their masters to the Union Army. In April, 1862, Congress abolished slavery in the District of Columbia and paid owners in the district about $300 on average for each slave. Three months after Congress passed the Second Confiscation Act, which mandated that any Confederate civilian or military official who did not surrender within 60 days would have his slaves freed. Two days after that, Congress banned slavery from the territories. Lincoln was trying to talk to the border states about allowing emancipation if they were compensated for losing their enslaved people. It wasn't really working, and he decided after talks broke down to start drafting the Emancipation Proclamation. In its final form, the Emancipation Proclamation would free the slaves in areas that were not under Union control as of January 1st, 1863, when it went into effect. This meant that it did not apply to the border states or places such as New Orleans, which were already under Union military occupation by that time. Lincoln used the Emancipation Proclamation as a bargaining chip. Just after the Battle of Antietam, September 17, 1862, he issued his proclamation calling on the revolted states to return to their allegiance before the next year. Otherwise, their slaves would be declared free men. No state returned, and the threatened declaration was issued on January 1, 1863. It's somewhat interesting that Lincoln did this considering that it seems by all rights, he may not have really had any authority to do so. This is a hotly debated topic and Britannica tells us more saying, as president, Lincoln could issue no such declaration. As commander in chief of the armies and navies of the United States, he could issue directions only as to the territory within his lines but the Emancipation Proclamation applied only to territories outside of his lines. It has therefore been debated whether the proclamation was in reality of any force. Now, obviously there were major benefits to the Union doing this. It allowed the Union's military to recruit black soldiers into their army, as well as being a blow to the South's ability to fight back. Now, I want to make a note here that while all this changed the landscape of the country, it didn't stop the US from being a racist place, hardly. Black soldiers were placed in segregated units and racism was alive and well. Not to mention the resentment that white enslavers had for their enslaved people being freed. This was just the beginning of all the civil race relations in the country. So while there was this growing need and desire for liberating black people from slavery, and it was an important moment in the country's history and was absolutely necessary and needed, there was still a lot of racism and bigotry that they faced even after being liberated. It's something that threatened their lives, even though they were free. And as most of you know, that segregation didn't end until the civil rights movement. And of course, racism is still alive and well today. But anyway, back to the Confederacy. Life was hard on the Southern states as war raged on because so much of their lives were blocked off from the rest of the world. As a result of their blocked ports, they struggled to get the goods they needed and things were getting scarce. This included food, which was the largest difficulty as starvation became something of a norm. 
hyperinflation sent the price of food skyrocketing while the value of the Confederate dollar cratered. Food riots broke out in several cities, including Richmond. In that instance, in April 1863, Davis ordered the militia to open fire on several hundred women if they did not leave the area, which they grudgingly did. So things were getting more and more grim for the Confederacy. And yet another battle left the Confederacy sure that they were invincible even through all of this. This time it was the battles in Chancellorville. Robert E. Lee, the commander of the Confederate army, astonishingly split his army into two. The Confederates, while having lost over 12,000 members of their militia, lost less men than the Union did, leaving it a Confederate victory. It was a tremendous victory for Lee. His actions, splitting his force twice in the face of such adversary double his size, are still studied in military academies for their vision and audacity. Lee emerged from the battle believing that his army, even without Jackson, was invincible, and his men emerged from the fight believing they were invincible as long as Lee was their commander. All of this set the stage for the battle at Gettysburg, which is probably one of the most well-known battles of the Civil War. After defeating the Union forces of General Joseph Hooker at Chancellorville, Virginia in May, Confederate General Robert E. Lee decided to invade the North in hopes of further discouraging the enemy and possibly inducing European countries to recognize the Confederacy. Confederate morale was high, whilst defeatist sentiment was spreading in the North and Lee's army numbered more than 71,000 troops. The first day of battle was a measured defeat for the Union, as they were well outnumbered with only 18,000 troops to the Confederates' 28,000 troops. There were heavy losses on both sides, but the Union lost nearly 50% of their men in this one day's battle alone. Total casualties that day amounted to over 15,000 killed, wounded, or captured. A series of unfortunate mistakes on the part of Lee and his corps caused them to fight poorly on the second day of battle. He gave his orders late, misjudged where the Union was positioned, and they mistimed their attacks. These events led to the second day of Gettysburg being the 10th bloodiest battle of the entire war. 20,000 were killed, captured, or wounded. The Confederates organized a large offensive with over 15,000 men headed towards the Union's 10,000. The Union had the advantage, however, positioned behind stone walls. They ceased fire until the Confederates were in range. Once they were, they unloaded. The Confederacy was attacked from three sides and they had no reinforcements. They were critically injured by the Union's attack. Lee and his men began to retreat, leaving behind captives and battle flags. The battle at Gettysburg was a turning point, though not the end of the war. Conscriptions happened on both sides and there were problems on both ends. In New York, there was a draft riot that broke out due to feelings of low paid laborers that would be replaced with black men as a result of the influx of newly freed people. On the Confederate side, there was controversy because wealthy men were able to pay their way out of conscription. And furthermore, if a man had 20 enslaved people, he was able to avoid it altogether. The next most important battle of the war is known as the Battle of the Wilderness. Between May and July of 1863, in the Western theater of the war, General Ulysses S. Grant lays siege to the Confederate stronghold of Vicksburg, Mississippi. The Confederates surrender on July 4th. The victory leaves the Mississippi River completely under Union control and splits the Confederacy in half. Then on September 2nd, 1864, General William T. Sherman captures Atlanta, Georgia. Sherman adopts a strategy of total war on his march through Georgia and the Carolinas. His troops destroy crops, supplies, railroads, bridges, and many small industries to weaken support for the war. Then in March and April of 1865, the final land battles took place. The Confederates were hurting really badly for food and resources by this time. 
When Lee's final attempt to break out failed, he surrendered the remnants of his army to Northern Virginia at the McLean House of Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th. Then on April 14th of 1865, Abraham Lincoln was shot and killed at Ford's Theater by John Wilkes Booth. And that is the extremely, extremely simplified version or as simplified as I can get of what happened in the Confederate War, the start, some of the major highlight points and the end of the war. When we continue to take a look at the history of the Confederacy in part two, we're going to take a look at the Confederacy in perspective and how it's seen as a type of heritage by some Southerners and knock down a few stereotypes around that and take a look at what it is that is the real heritage supposedly. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Prism of the Past. If you did, make sure you're liking, following and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you so much for making it to another one and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.